I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. I'm Jack Caprell, filling in for Andrew Schwartz. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll catch up on big news out of Europe. We'll unpack what we know about the EU-China investment agreement and what it suggests about European strategic autonomy. Plus, we'll take a look at the first two weeks of Britain's departure from the EU and what it signals about how London will navigate its new relationship with Brussels. And we'll look at a global semiconductor shortage that's slowing automobile production around the world. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. All right, we're back with a brand new episode of The Trade Guys, and it's a special day, January 15th here, for two reasons. One, we just had a great event with Dr. Sabine Weyand, who had DG Trade, the European Commission, and so we'll unpack our conversation with her, but I encourage all of our listeners to get online and get to the CSIS website and listen to the entire conversation because it was a fascinating one led by Bill and Heather, who's been Heather Connolly, who's been a guest on our podcast before. But the second reason why it's a great day is that it's Bill Reinch's birthday. So happy birthday, Bill. I'm sure there's nothing you'd rather be doing than recording an episode of The Trade Guys. I've been dreaming about this opportunity all night. So I'm just delighted to be here and no longer counting birthdays. What I wanted to start with today is following up on your conversation with Sabine and also playing a little bit of catch up because there were a couple of stories that came out of Europe that we missed during the Christmas and New Year break. So first, let's talk about this investment agreement that China and the EU have reached an agreement on in principle. It took them seven years to negotiate. It seems like at some point in the winter, the Chinese kind of made the decision that now was the time to finish the deal and then the pieces fell into place. But there's been a quite a bit of, I would say, criticism or concern or questioning out of the US and Europe about the agreement, the timing of the agreement and the contents of the agreement, right? There's concern that the Europeans went and concluded this deal, a major deal, just weeks before a new administration in Washington is supposed to come in into power. And there's concern that the deal doesn't do enough to on the labor front with China, that China hasn't really made a serious commitments to improve labor rights for workers in its country. So what do you guys make of, of the agreement? Do you think it's a good deal? How do you think the Biden administration will perceive the agreement? Do you think uh, the criticism and concerns around the agreement are fair? Well, I think what we learned this morning from Dr. Veyand was not a lot because the text is not public, although she did say the text will be public next week, which is a good sign. And I think it was clear from the discussion that there's some mystery about the degree of specificity that they've got. Much of the conversation was about forced labor commitments. I, she acknowledged that uh, you know the Chinese didn't make a, a firm deadline-specific commitment to uh, subscribe to various ILO conventions, which is what people had been expecting and hoping for, and which apparently they got out of the Vietnamese in their agreement with Vietnam, but did not get uh, with China. And I couldn't help but note that, you know, the, the history of the Chinese in negotiations is they're pretty good at adhering to the letter, but not always so good at adhering to the spirit. 
So if you don't pin them down as a negotiator, you and and leave uh, escape hatches. You know they usually take them. I remember that when they joined the WTO, they promised also to join the government procurement agreement. It's now 20 years later, and we're still waiting for that to happen. You know, they've made a number of offers, all of which were judged inadequate by the other parties. And there's been a lot of back and forth, but they haven't actually done it. And I think the EU, in this case, could have insisted on a deadline for them to do it, because it is it is a question of sovereignty, but it's China doesn't have a real legislature in the sense that you know, there's going to be an independent vote on this. If the regime wants to subscribe, the National People's Congress will pass it. But they could also have negotiated an agreement that said it wouldn't go into effect until the Chinese had done this. They didn't do any of that. So I think that we're doomed to some disappointment on that front. She did affirm that the agreement imposes no obstacles to individual member states blocking investment transactions on national security grounds. But it was also pointed out by one of the questioners that that cuts both ways. And it probably is not going to prevent the Chinese from using that same thing as an excuse to retaliate against European member states who speak out on China's human rights policies. Scott, what's your take? Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting moment because here we have a lot of talk, both from the Biden campaign and the transition team, as well as the Europeans, about the merits of action in concert on the part of allies and partners when it comes to you know, solving economic problems, but also in the specific matter of dealing with China. So uh, that's the rhetoric. Okay. What I'm noticing is there's a there's an underlying uh, real politics that is influencing the actions. And it uh, makes me recall a book called Every Nation for Itself, written by Ian Bremmer. Ian Bremmer is a relatively famous Washington-based risk management consultant, and he runs a risk management firm called the Eurasia Group. And he coined the term G0, okay, sometime back. And this pre-Trump, this, it was uh, a number of years ago. But the notion is that they're really, the, you can talk about all the, the alignments you want, but when it comes down to it, economies or nations will pursue their interest above any of alliance partners. And so I think that's happening here. Look, uh, Europe is kind of hilarious when it comes to investment agreements because investment treaties themselves became massively controversial in Europe, mostly because of, of some investor disputes filed by nuclear energy firms and just put the green parties in Europe in, in a huge state of uproar. And uh, the commission itself, when they were negotiating with Canada on a comprehensive trade and investment agreement, essentially surrendered on this. At the same time, the very same time, there were hundreds of agreements at the member state levels that re remained in force and remain in force to this day. So it's the espoused theory versus theory in use uh, that shows up in these cases. The espoused theory uh, when it comes to China is the US and Europe ought to work together. The theory in use is well, we have an opportunity to protect our investors and we're going to take it. And so that shouldn't surprise any of us. It's a, you do the best for your interests, and uh, Europe seems to have done that. We'll know more when we read the agreement. No, Bill, let me ask one of the questions or one of the topics that you discussed with Dr. Bayon was the concept of strategic autonomy. And I think that term worries folks in Washington because it suggests that the Europeans are going to strike out on their own path. And, you know, that path may lead them down a road of more 
tenuous trade relations with the United States and you're taking foreign policy decisions that disadvantage the United States, do you think that, you know, this agreement is emblematic of Europe's new drive for strategic autonomy and puts the U.S. in a, in a worse position vis-a-vis Europe and China? I think it's emblematic of that. I'm not sure that it's going to make things worse than they already are. She had a very long answer to that question, which was not entirely enlightening. She was clear, though, that they do seem to think that compartmentalization is okay, that we can do a deal with the Chinese that suits our immediate interests today, and tomorrow maybe we can work with you in ways that ultimately end up confronting the Chinese and that we can get away with that. And I mean, that's sort of an untested hypothesis. We'll, we'll see what happens. I'm not sure that it, the Chinese will let them get away with it. It's, it's not quite uh, that simple. And, and the Chinese are, are, I think, notorious for linking these things together. I mean, you know, you, you make a critical comment about Hong Kong or Xinjiang or whatever, and then suddenly you discover that you're, you know, your blueberries can't get into the country because they've decided that there's a health or sanitary or phytosanitary restriction. I mean, the Australians are going through this right now, uh, just the worst way. And you'd think that it would be a, a cautionary lesson for Europe. So I, I'm a little concerned that they that they think they can do that and, and not have the same thing happen to them. I'm not sure that it will make a lot of difference in terms of their relationship with us. There's a lot of repair work that has to be done first transatlantic before we can talk about, I think, a united front. You know, Trump spent four years tearing down the relationship, not just in trade, but on defense and on a host of things. And I think there's a good bit of work that has to be done to rebuild it, which Biden's committed to. I'm not, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's not going to happen. It is going to happen. It's going to take some time. And I don't see us marching in, you know, shoulder to shoulder against China you know, anytime soon. I just see a lot of efforts to try to get us to the point where we can talk about doing that. Yeah, you know, look, I think that I think that we have to manage expectations about on what issues and to what extent the United States and, and Europe will partner. I would agree with you, Bill, about the damage of the Trump administration, but it wasn't like it was a great relationship before that. I mean, for many years, a lot of American traders were convinced that the, the whole purpose of the European Union's mission in Geneva was to undermine U.S. policy. And uh, so there have been a lot of squabbles over the years. Farm policy for a very long time was an issue of constant conflict. It's not like it got settled, basically. All that happened is American farmers stopped worrying about Europeans and served the markets in, in Asia where people were buying more food or becoming more middle class and improving their diets. So it's not like any of that went away in the interim. I hope the Biden team is realistic about what can be achieved. I think we all hope that we would be able to work together, but it hasn't worked out as well as we had hoped in the past. No, and I, I was not persuaded by anything she said that strategic autonomy is going to turn out to be an entirely benign concept from the American point of view. It, she acknowledged that not everybody in Europe thinks about it the same way, which is, is certainly true. And it's been difficult to get a grip on exactly what it means, because it clearly means different things to different people. But I think to some people, it means Europe doing things to enhance its strategic technology sectors, because they also talk about technology autonomy, doing things to enhance those sectors 
uh, really at our expense because we are the leaders in the sectors that they're talking about. The digital services tax is probably a prime example of, of that. And I, I don't really see them backing away from that. And they've set out a number of olive branches. And she said they've got a, they're working on a number of proposals on the DST and on, on WTO reform that they hope to present in, in February, which I think from, from her point of view, she hopes will be a basis for discussion with the United States and hopefully agreement with the United States. We'll have to see what they are. And no doubt we'll be talking about them when, when they arrive. My sense is that that is what Scott said. They're good at focusing on what's good for them and a little less good at focusing on what might lead us to a common agreement on on some of these issues. So we'll stay tuned and see what how strategic autonomy unfolds and also look at the uh, actual text of the EU-China investment agreement. So that's a story we'll follow up on. The other Europe's story that we need to catch up on from the holiday season is Brexit, which after years finally kicked in. The UK left the EU. I want to ask you guys kind of a a fundamental question, which is, you know, is it fair to say that regardless of Brexit formally coming into effect, the UK is still tied to the EU's regulatory structure, but now in in a more expensive way? And I'll illustrate this question. The, the New York Times, they did a really great story where they documented the f- first week of Brexit and kind of like new issues that UK businesses had to deal with every day. So on, on Monday, there was financial trading. European companies had to migrate from the London Stock Exchange and other London-based platforms. On Tuesday, retailers had trouble getting fresh salads and other foods across the channel. On Wednesday, the Bank of England uh, said the Brexit deal will cost the economy about 2% of GDP over the next couple of years, in part because of additional paperwork that would be required to import and export goods. Thursday, Scottish salmon farmers had trouble getting fillets from sea to the French markets within 24 hours. And then Friday, there were issues with uh, European delivery companies getting goods across borders. And it just kind of seems to me like in in some respect, you know, the UK, they still have to deal with European regulation, but now they just have to pay a lot more in terms of time, resources, and effort, right? Look, I'm going to take a much more sort of practical view of this and point out that first, that sounds like a normal business week for anybody in the trading business. I mean, there are problems, okay? There are issues that come up. Anytime you're moving something across international boundaries, stuff happens. So that would be the first point. Second, none of those amount to a total catastrophe. And keep in mind, there have been forecasts of absolute doom. The the whole Brexit, the notion of, of Brexit, a no-deal Brexit, was referred to as crashing out of the European Union. Okay. As I read the headlines, and now the, the time story was, was well-researched, and I'm not contradicting that in any way, nor saying that there aren't going to be continuing difficulties. Uh, but my own view is what got the headlines in London papers had nothing to do with Brexit. It had to do with, with restrictions on movement uh, because of a new strain of COVID. Okay, that's where, that's where the news media focused. And I watched that happen and say, well, you know what? Every business in the UK has been thinking about this problem for five years. 
and they found a way to manage the risks and and muddle through. And I actually think that's a very good thing. Uh, you know, the, his referendum goes back to I think 2015, but it, but it's it's been a while that this has been a live issue. And sometimes when things move that slowly, you have the opportunity to make the plans, test them out, figure out which ones don't work. But for me overall, I don't see that that there's there's a catastrophe. That's been experienced so far. Anything that would cause those in Britain who who prevailed in the referendum and prevailed in the in the agreement to walk it back in any way. Now, look, Europe is still a very big trading partner for the UK. It's a big services partner, particularly in financial services. There'll be a lot of issues to work out, but big traders come with big problems. We we still work out issues between the US and Canada. So I'm in the nonplussed camp. Yeah, I'm not a sanguine as Scott is about this. Maybe it's because I just think the UK has made an historic mistake that is going to hurt them in the long run. But my reaction is all those things that Jack mentioned that have happened, those weren't happening, you know, last year. They're problems now. And Scott's right. They're perfectly ordinary problems that occur when countries trade with each other. But they're problems that they didn't have before because they were part of a common market. So in a way, it's, they're not new problems. I mean, they're problems that they had in the 50s and 60s, you know, before they joined the common market. Uh, and now they're back. And, you know, Scott's right that they had five years to get ready. But, you know, this is human nature. <laughs> you know, getting ready is you worry about it when it's happening next week. You don't have worry about it when it's happening five years in the future. And so, yeah, I mean, the world did not come to an end and it's not going to come to an end. People will cope. The salmon farmers will figure out, you know, how to get their stuff across the channel on time. And, you know, the financial sector will figure out what to do. And as will the retailers, life will go on. As Jack said, the article applies. It'll be more expensive. There'll be more paperwork. There'll be more uncertainty. I think what it means long term is that the center of gravity in Europe is moving eastward. And London is just simply going to become less important. And it's going to become less important to people outside the EU. The calls are going to come go to Paris, Brussels, Berlin. You know, they're not going to go to London. And uh, 20 years from now, I think the British government will regret it. I think the other problem that they've got, which they haven't fully dealt with yet, is that the Brexit agreement by itself doesn't really do very much to resolve the, the dilemma they've got in negotiating with us. Because what we are going to say is you know, adopt our standards. We've had this conversation multiple times on the podcast. You know, uh, my metaphor is always the chickens. We're going to say, take our chickens. And the EU is going to say, if you take the American chickens, then you're going to have a problem exporting your chickens to us. And it's not our problem. Uh, it's really not the EU's problem. It's the UK's problem because both sides are telling them to choose. And they're going to have to do that. And there are a number of cases where you can't simply say, oh, we're going to do both. You know, they're going to have to pick and that's going to have consequences. And the, the we may be their single largest one country trading partner, but, you know, nearly half their trade, as I recall, goes across the channel to the EU. I think they throw that uh, over the side at their peril. I think we got a preview of this this week when Michael Barnier, the EU's Brexit negotiator, warned that as a result, this was in the context of the UK deciding to authorize a previously banned pesticide, warned that more actions like that, that diverge from the EU's regulatory system, would cause the UK to risk losing 
tariff-free, quota-free trading rights with the EU. So it seems to me like they're still kind of bound to the hip with the EU. It's just the stakes are a little bit higher and they have less control over the consequences of their actions. But go ahead, Scott. Well, look, it gives it gives negotiators things to work on. Uh, this is fine. This sounds uh, to me like a fairly ordinary set of problems. There's no question that being in the single market is more efficient than being outside of it, even if that's zero tariffs and zero quotas. So there's an efficiency decline. Uh, but I just I think back to the comment that was Sir Michael Caine made during the Brexit vote, and they asked him why he supported Brexit. And his comment was very simple. He said, I'd rather be a poor master of my own estate than a little richer, but have the control be someplace beyond my reach. Something to that effect, which since Sir Michael is not poor, he can say that <laughs> much more easily. Uh, but I think that's the, that's the mentality. And we have to, uh, I think it's important if you believe in self-government and you believe in, in the, the practices and the habits of self-governing people, this was a choice that, that Britain made, and if they're poor and have some difficulties, it's their choice, okay? And, and that's, for me, I'm just, I'm impressed with the people on the front lines who made it not catastrophic, who kept food on the shelves, who, who figured out a way to make it happen. So that's, that's probably the good news for me out of, out of the whole story. Well, stoicism is a British quality. Having British ancestors, I can speak to that, but this is going to be you know, if, if the best we can do is be stoic about it, that's not really that's really not that good news. You know, uh, they're going to I mean, it, it's I agree. It's their sovereign right to decide what it is that they want to do. And and they decided uh, that doesn't mean that they decided wisely. And, you know, I think that 20 years from now, history is going to show that they made a huge mistake. But we will see in the short run. You know, the issue is going to be how it impacts their negotiation with us. I think the answer to that is un uncertain. The Brexit agreement, it didn't cover a lot of stuff. You know, it didn't cover a lot of services. It didn't cover a lot of digital trade. I mean, the EU has now, in theory, has the flexibility to write its own regulations. So they've got what they want, sovereignty. But they run into exactly what Jack was talking about. You know, if you make too many changes, then there's going to be repercussions. The GDPR is a classic theoretical example, you know, the UK now can is free to adopt some system that is not identical to GDPR. But what that means is they have to get an adequacy finding out of the EU now that they didn't have to get before. So if they change something, it's going to be up to the EU to decide if their new procedures are, are adequate. And the EU just got done deciding, thanks to the European Court of Justice, that our procedures are not adequate. So, you know, there's this whole new level of risk and therefore uncertainty that the UK is going to have to deal with. Yes, they can do those things, but there may very well be consequences if they do. Let me shift gears, pun intended, to a story about the automotive sector. It's a global story and I think shows not only how the auto industry has evolved over the past 10 or 20 years, but also how increasingly global the industry is. Uh, there are a bunch of stories this week that semiconductor shortage, which is not an item that you necessarily think about or associate with the automobile industry, but a semiconductor shortage has slowed manufacturing of the world's biggest automobile companies, Daimler, Nissan, Honda, Ford, Fiat Chrysler, and they're having to either cut production or idle factories altogether because they don't have the chips 
to you know act as the brains of automobiles uh, necessary to keep keep production up and you know I think for me there are two ways to read the story one which I mentioned before that semiconductors continue to grow in importance in global supply chains right I think Bill you like to say that automobiles are increasingly just computers on wheels but also today or yesterday there was new reporting on the story coming out that automakers that had previously relied on getting chips from mainland China and then had to switch to getting chips from Taiwan as a result of actions by the Trump administration really felt the pinch because there is a huge uh, supply bottleneck as demand for auto automobiles was more resilient than expected, but also demand for uh, like personal entertainment devices grew over the course of the pandemic. With that context, I'll kind of throw a grenade question at you guys. Do you think this story is proof that the United States should adopt a kind of industrial policy for semiconductor manufacturing capacity? Well, look, I don't think that shortages are proof of anything and certainly not a guarantor of any policy direction, mostly because manufactured goods are always changing. Okay. And frankly, in most cases, they're always improving. Consumers want better stuff. And automobiles are today's example of how things changed. I mean, I'm a car buff myself, so I've followed the industry for years. And I have a geriatric vehicle in my garage. It dates from 1965. It has an electrical system. It has zero electronics. In fact, it doesn't have a radio because at that time, European radios were different than, than U.S. radio bandwidths. And it wasn't installed at the factory. And the, the person who owned this car... Uh, originally didn't have a U.S. radio installed when he imported it from Europe. So, but, but it's a very simple electrical system. And today, my daughter recently got a new Volkswagen SUV, very nice vehicle, very impressive. Uh, and I look at the dashboard and it has almost nothing in common with my, you know, geriatric 1965 car. <laughs> and, and you look at the advances. The amazing advances in technology, mostly driven by consumer demand, uh, some driven by cost, but but still the wholesale improvement in these products that happens almost on a daily basis is stunning. And we lose sight of it because, you know, we don't follow the industry closely or we just take for granted that it's there. Look, that happens in every product, in every category. And for me, shortages are just a way that the market's saying that we need more of something. And uh, the people who are in that business, markets... I, th I think remain one of the best things we've ever done as human species. It is a distributed intelligence system that works far better than any control system that anybody's been able to impose on it. So yeah, the, I think shortages, well, sounds like we need more chips and someone will figure that out. A book that I got back when I was at the National Foreign Trade Council, and we had a board meeting, which was sort of a, the world is coming to an end board meeting. How do we prepare for all these disasters? And one of the speakers distributed a book of his, I think it was called One Second After or Two Seconds After, featured a, you know, an unspecified disaster, which was apparently a, a series of nuclear bombs set off in the upper stratosphere, in the atmosphere, that had the effect of frying all the semiconductors that it could reach. And it, I mean, it was just this huge planes fell out of the sky and, you know, uh, power plant shut down. And uh, But one of the kind of amusing things that happened is, you know, most of the vehicles stopped working because they were all electronics. So in this little town in Virginia where the action in the, no it's a, it's a novel. It's not just a documentary. 
where the action takes place, the only people that had any mobility were the guy whose father was a retired Ford dealer and had an Edsel sitting in his garage, and this young woman who drove a, a Beetle from the 50s, neither of which had any electronics at all. And they were the only moving cars in the within a 50-mile radius, at least, of, of what was going on. So anyway, apropos of nothing. To respond to Jack's question, Personally, I think we need a, a semiconductor industrial policy. We've done that before, and I think we're at the point we need to do it again. This particular incident, I don't think, is, is evidence of that or, or proof of that. I think it's what Scott said. You've got a shortage. The market will respond. You've got a supply and uh, demand imbalance. It does kind of suggest with the tariffs something that uh, probably is obvious to all the listeners of, of this podcast, which is, you know, you mess with the market and then unexpected things happen. Uh, and if you're going to set up barriers, then there's going to be collateral damage downstream and stuff that you don't think about until it happens. And then you say, well, how did that happen? And you work your way back and you say, well, it happened because of, you know, this, these tariffs you put in or whatever it is that you did. So, I mean, I, I think the episode demonstrates what happens when you've got integrated supply chains and when you've got very complicated supply chains with lots of products, they're vulnerable to you know, the most vulnerable element. So you can't get a chip. So the whole thing stops because you can't get one part. But I don't think that relates directly to the United States industrial policy issue. And the industrial policy issue anyway would not be about so much about increasing domestic production as much as it would be making sure that we maintain our innovation leadership in the sector and are developing new generations of products. I think our ability to continue to do that is a lot more important than exactly where they, the products end up being manufactured. Well, with that wisdom, wise advice, and good perspective, I think we'll shut things down for the week. We'll be back next week, obviously, with a brand new episode, guys. Uh, so stay tuned, and we'll talk to you then. And be safe. Happy birthday, Bill. To our listeners... If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.